Hey folks, Tony Gatliff here, back with another amazing episode of Military Resource Radio. We are back with our guest from last week. Same uh, same guest, uh, same bat time, same bat channel. If anybody remembers the old uh, Batman uh, you know, uh, TV show with Adam West. Same bat time, same bat channel, same guest. Michael Epstein, uh, and he is an award-winning filmmaker, and actually tonight he has uh, a amazing uh, documentary coming out on PBS, and it's called Going to War. He also has another uh, tremendous film uh, that just premiered at Tribeca, and that's called House 2, and we're going to talk about a little bit about those uh, films, both of them, uh, here today. On Military Resource Radio. Uh, again, uh, Michael Epstein is an amazing documentary uh, award-winning filmmaker whose work has appeared uh, in many, many amazing uh, programs, A&E Biography, Frontline. He's also been nominated for an Academy Award, uh, has a couple Peabody Awards, has two Emmy Awards, and, and this guy's just amazing. So um, I'm going to quit flapping my gums, and we're going to get right into that interview with Michael Epstein. Again, I'm Tony Gatliff, host of Military Resource Radio. Welcome to the show for today. And remember, we're also going to have Michael on next week. So please subscribe to the podcast and uh, and uh, that will automatically get uh, downloaded into your device every single week. And as well, if you didn't hear our initial uh, interview with Michael Epstein from last week, you'll probably want to go back and listen to that as well, too. And that's available on MilitaryResourceRadio.com, as well as iTunes, any of our other podcast outlets, Spreaker, SoundCloud, whatever it may be. It's available on there as well, too. So uh, without uh, without any further holdup, uh, let's uh, get right into our interview with filmmaker Michael Epstein. Let's dive in and let's talk a little bit um, about going to war. Okay, um, sure. Can you just sort of so so this is the this this is the film that we've touched on a little bit, um, but this is a feature. Uh, excuse me, it's a one-hour television special. It features Sebastian Younger and Carl Marlantis, who you already just talked about, and it's basically about what it means to go to war. Again premiering Memorial Day 2018 on PBS. And it's just, it's an amazing set of interviews and it's veterans from Vietnam, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, all, and really what it is, is they're all giving their take on what the entire experience is of going to war, right? So it's from boot camp, you know, from the first day that they, that they enter the military, which that was a really, really interesting part of it. And and uh, I talk a little bit about that, just the boot camp part of it. Sure. Well, we were allowed to film at MCRD San Diego, Marine Corps Recruitment Depot in San Diego, and we, you know, we got those Marines getting off the bus and being yelled at by their drill instructors and putting their feet on the yellow lines. And um, and it's about, you know, the whole film is meant to take you on that journey from being a boot to being a vet, um, and uh, the understanding why people enlist um, and what that experience is like, the transformation uh, from civilian to Marine or soldier in this case, um, and what happens to you, right? I mean, uh, you know, the, the, it's not the loss of, of identity, although there's a piece of that. It's about 
acquiring a new identity of the group and understanding um, different priorities, frankly, that are necessary to, to fight. And so, you know, we go through all of the, the interesting stories. There were so many more stories that we heard that we couldn't fit. But among the most compelling ones was a, um, a soldier, this is in Fort Benning, who his Achilles tendon snapped. I could not believe that. And, and yeah. it, it, unbelievable. But go, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt that. Cause yeah, no, story. no, no. It's a great, you know, Harrison is an amazing guy. Uh, he's in Texas. Uh, he's just so articulate and so fascinating. And, you know, he was, he said, I'm not an athlete and it was the hardest thing in the world for me. But at the beginning of his, of his last March, his Achilles tendon snapped and he could feel it and he couldn't go. And he had his rucksack and uh, heavy and, and, and there's a car trailing behind you. And if the, if you fall behind the car, you're out. All of that basic is done and you're done. And so, if you, so just to, just to like just so people understand this, so you go through about eight weeks, I believe, of of boot camp yeah. or basic training, right? So, and I mean, you're going through hellish stuff, right? And yeah. so, basically, if this car catches up to you, you're screwed. He it's was like, done. It's like you're you didn't done. even go. Yeah, correct. You're out. And he yeah. was done. He knew he couldn't do it. And somebody from his unit came out of formation, fell back and said, I'm not going to let you fail. And, um, and you know, it is that notion that, that you don't, you don't fight for yourself. You fight for the man or the woman next to you. Um, you don't serve for yourself. You serve for others in your unit. And that as a unit, you cannot be defeated. An individual might be able to be. And I think that's something that we as civilians never experience. Forget for a second that we don't understand it. We never experience it. And Harrison moved to Sebastian and myself. We, we both talked about this quite a bit with the interview to tears in telling this story. It was so compelling because Gibson, private Gibson took his sack and marched with him for 12 miles so that he would not fail. When Harrison told us that was the first time in his life that he realized that somebody cared more about him than they did themselves. And that, I think, encapsulates uh, the best of what it means to serve. And then, of course, we go into combat and into the jungle and to the desert and to the Korangal Valley. And, you know, people talk about whatever they went through, either food or basic uh, it, it, it did not prepare them in any way. There's own, you can't be prepared to be shot at. Right. Well, that's what um, that, that was one of the main uh, quotes, right? You know, they said things you can't teach in boot camp, the experience right. of war or being shot at. And, you know, one, yeah. of the, one of the interesting parts, too, that that was very um, uh, eye opening to me. And I guess I had never thought of what this would be like, but it was sort of um, uh, and, I, and I forget exactly who it was, but it was. Uh, the gentleman was a Vietnam veteran. He had glasses. It was the guy that was talking about later on down the line. He was playing soccer with his son. Oh, and Ken. Yeah. Ken, yep. And and right. so he was talking about um, 
when he landed in Vietnam, everything looks green and lush, and it looks this like this beautiful place as you're helicoptering in. And you land down there, and the helicopter not only is dropping people off, it's also taking people back, right, after they've finished their tour. And that gentleman said, I, I just couldn't believe the looks on these guys' faces. They weren't even looking at us. They were looking at the ground. And I believe he said to his sergeant, you know, what's with, what's with all this? And the guy said, you'll find out what that's about later. Yeah. And, right. and, you know, that feeling of, like, you're not in Kansas anymore, you know. That well, you know, in Vietnam, they called it the thousand-yard stare, right? Um, and, yeah, I mean, we had Iraq veterans talk about, you know, with that handover, and you're looking at those guys, and there's a kind of um, deadness in their eye um, because, and I think that's something of what we tried to do is saying, like, look, you know, we as a society, as we were saying at the beginning, um, I, I think, and I say this with a bit of caution, but we tend to fetishize military service. Um, and we don't talk about it honestly, you know? We haven't, we don't really engage it. And those guys who came in and then turned around, um, you saw something in those combat vets' eyes that you, that they could not articulate, and they can't express. And the hope of the film is, is that, you know, from that point forward, we, we begin to express what it means to, to, to lose someone you love in combat. Um, Carl, I thought, lost his radio man, um, and his story was just a brilliantly articulated and, and very emotional and, 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 um, you know, A.B. Grantham, um, gets wounded in Way City and what all of those, what, what those mean on a much more intimate, real level, um, when you're not trying to sell something or make somebody feel good or, or, or get ratings, uh, that was the goal here. And, um, I, I had a remarkable team, a woman named Laura Sweet is the associate producer, um, and Prisca Pointejour, who works with uh, Henry Louis Gates quite a bit. Um, but Laura, her father uh, served in Vietnam, uh, saw two tours, and, um, and, you know, we went out and fanned the country to try to find veterans through social media, through veterans administration, you know, veterans of groups, um, to give them an opportunity to just tell their story. Um, and uh, hopefully we, we succeeded in some small way. Well, I, I, I think you really did. And, and, you know, that, that was very interesting to me. And, you know, the, I, you know, I agree with you. Folks, Tony Gatliff, host of Military Resource Radio here, and I'm sorry to interrupt this rousing rendition of Military Resource Radio, but I've got a couple things I've got to go over. The first thing is Military Resource Radio is on the BBMC Mortgage Radio Network, and it is sponsored by BBMC Mortgage. BBMC Mortgage is a full-service lender in all 50 states doing residential purchase and residential refinance loans. 
Any of your residential mortgage needs can be taken care of by BBMC Mortgage. And if you do have any needs, you need to dial us up at 888-366, the number 4, and the letters MRR. That's 888-366, the number 4, Mike Romeo Romeo. Or, numerically, 888-366-4677. We will put you in touch with the right expert at BBMC Mortgage to handle your situation You'll be so glad that you got your mortgage through BBMC Mortgage because they are a tremendous sponsor of this show. And guess what? Me, Tony Gatliff, I'm a vice president of mortgage lending at BBMC Mortgage too, in addition to being the host of this show. So we'll put you in touch with the right person here at BBMC Mortgage. If you do have any mortgage needs, please give us a call, 888-366, the number four, and the letters MRR. As well... If you do choose to do business with BBMC Mortgage, you're doing well and you're doing good at the same time. And that's because of our Patriots Charity Initiative. This is an amazing program, folks. What it does is BBMC Mortgage on each and every funded loan's proceeds, whether that's a VA loan, FHA loan, conventional loan, non-conforming or jumbo loan, any mortgage that we do, whether it's a purchase or refinance, we give $125 of that funded loans proceeds, which adds up to about over $2.5 million since 2015 when we started this. We give $125 of that funded loans proceeds to one of four veteran-related service organizations. Now, it's BBMC's $125, but you, the client, get to pick where it goes. And the four veteran service organizations that we work with right now on the Patriots Charity Initiative are the USO, The Mission Continues, The Headstrong Project, and Team Rubicon, all amazing organizations. You can find out more about our Patriots Charity Initiative by heading on over to militaryresourceradio.com. Again, that's militaryresourceradio.com for all the latest and greatest information on the show. But you have to scroll down on the homepage down to our Patriots Charity Initiative section, and that'll give you a better idea of what we do and what these service organizations out there do. They're all four of them are amazing organizations that are doing great things for veterans and active duty service members out there. So I'm sure you're going to want to check that out. One last thing. I want you to follow us on Twitter at MilitaryRR. That's at Military, just the word Military, Romeo, Romeo, at MilitaryRR. That's our Twitter handle for Military Resource Radio. We're just getting that up and running, so please jump onto Twitter and follow us at MilitaryRR. Again, I'm Tony Gatliff, your host with Military Resource Radio, and we'll be back in just a minute with some more Military Resource Radio. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting that you really took on head on in the film was what it's like to kill someone that's an enemy and that is clearly yep. being aggressive towards you and is clearly trying to kill you, right? So a lot of people think, well, you know, hey, it's you or them and, you know, you had to kill them and whatever, right? And yes, there's there's something to that for sure. But also, and, and I've talked to a veteran actually that I'm very close to that has gone through this same thing, and the situation is much, much different when you're the person who actually has to pull that trigger and take another person's life. And yeah. I thought it was very, very interesting the way that you folks just went right on 
head on at that because you don't really see that discussed much in military documentaries or or any media about the military uh, but I thought it was very poignant and it's something that certainly many many people that have gotten out of the military go through and and I just I found it very poignant that you did that well thank you uh you know look I, if if we had a mission it was that it was to confront moments like that uh, without fear or equivocation. And we had great people like Carl. Um, Carl, you know, talked about, you know, being so close to a, a, um, an NVA soldier uh, who, who was throwing a grenade at him, right? Uh, who had what they called a chai com. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, look, I mean, it, was, it was war. It was him or Carl, and Carl writes about it and talked about it quite forthrightly, and I, I'm, I'm very grateful to him for it. He shot the guy, and he had to, uh, and there's no doubt about that. that. You know, we, as a country, put Carl there. Carl didn't travel to Vietnam on his own. Uh, we put him there. We drafted him. We gave him the gun, um, and to, to, to sort of disassociate ourselves from the place that Carl found himself at that moment and then subsequently is, I think, just um, really not ethical. I mean, I have stronger no, words I, for it, but I, I'll be nice on the podcast. And, you know, Carl talked about how he didn't feel anything at that moment. He was in combat. Um, Ken, you know, had a different experience in the rice paddies in Vietnam who, you know, he, he felt it at that moment. But, but Carl was, he moved back to Seattle and, or just outside in Washington. And he talked about how one day he was on, I think, Driving I-5 Driving down or the something. I-5 at two in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to his country music and there in the windshield, some 15, 20 years later, that NVA soldier's face popped up in the windshield. Um, and uh, he just had buried it for years. And so, you know, I, I wanted to talk about that in the film. I wanted Carl and other veterans, um, and Carl did too. I mean, it was, I was not like I'm twisting Carl's arm. You know, he's, he's, he's an amazing um, human being and an amazing artist and writer. We wanted to put it out there for people, and in part, not just so that veterans could hear others talk about their story. I mean, for me, Brian Kastner, who is an EOD um, specialist, Air Force guy, and, and he wrote, uh, I think, among the best memoirs about the war in Iraq called The Long Walk. He talks about nearly breaking one day, coming in uh, after an IED attack and, and almost shooting a bunch of women um and it was his honesty and his just how, how trusting he was of us as filmmakers that i'm intensely grateful for but you know part of it is is for veterans to be able to hear other stories but to say you know it's okay somebody's going to listen and just to, to get people to start telling their stories and even if they only tell their stories to their loved ones or to their friends I mean, one of the most painful things that I heard in the whole making of the film was, again, I keep coming back to Ken, um, who said, you know, nobody wanted to hear. He had all these things he wanted to talk about when he came home from Vietnam, 
and nobody wanted to listen. Yeah, and even his own father sure. didn't want to hear. Yeah, well, I mean, and you got to understand that's a natural human emotion, right? I mean, talking about, you know, things are gory and bloody and, you know, I mean, it's kind of a drag, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it kind of is. But but it's when he said that, I couldn't believe it. Like, man, your own father didn't even want to hear about it. That was that was pretty unbelievable to me. Well, and I would imagine there are many veterans listening to this podcast and hopefully many who will watch the program who will nod their heads and say, yeah, yeah, I that happened to me too. And that's not okay. You know, look, because the, the, the thing is, is also, I, I would imagine I've talked to some vets, you know, um, we talked in the film about it. You know, the worst question is, did you kill anybody? Like what the <laughs> right. hell kind of question is that? Right. I mean, it's right. just a horrible, well, and, and of, invasive. And of yeah. course, and of course, folks ha- have morbid curiosity, right? And they can't right. stop themselves from asking that question. But it's it's every time I I think about somebody asking that, I just think to myself, oh my god, I like shudder and cringe, you know? Right. But you know, look, your job as a civilian, I would say, is not uh, to ask questions; it's to listen. And in that listening, you can try to bridge some of the gap because I think that for the most part, and I don't, you know, I don't mean to speak for the veterans because I'm not a veteran. Me um, too. So yep. I, apo- I apologize up front. Um, but I don't think most of the veterans I know don't want to be celebrated. They want to be heard. And... Uh, we're just not doing a very good job of that. And so this film, which is on Memorial Day, is my attempt at listening as a filmmaker. And hopefully, you know, the American public will either turn in that night or stream it afterwards and, and listen as well. And veterans who watch it will feel um, emboldened to turn to their loved ones or their friends and tell their story. And that their friends and family um, will just stop and listen, right? I mean, you don't. Sometimes we think, oh, we have to have the right question or whatever. No, you don't. You know, I did when I went in these interviews, um, but by and large, all I did was listen. And there's there can be something quite redemptive in listening. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And you know, I I think that. Um... Uh, you know, it's, it's always tough to, you know, and I'm a civilian too. Right. So, so I'm in the same boat as you, right. You know, I'm trying to get the, the word out there. I'm trying to spread uh, the word about different resources and things that veterans and active duty service members are interested in. But at the end of the day, I'm not a veteran. Right. And so, so it's tough sometimes for us civilians to sort of figure out, you know, what's the right thing to say? What's the right question to ask? What, whatever. But I think you're right. Maybe if we just uh, close our mouths and open our ears to veterans right. and to active duty service members, I think we'd probably help a lot more. Yeah. Well, listen, let me suggest that it's very hard to offend somebody if you're listening. Um, so, <laughs> True. you know, don't True. be afraid to listen. Uh and, you know, I just keep going back to, uh, for me, it was very informative, you know, that moment putting my daughter to bed before I left for, uh, for, for Iraq in 2008, realizing how little I knew um, about it and 
thinking, okay, going forward, uh, you need to do a better job of listening um, because you'll learn more. You'll just learn more. You'll know more if you listen. Right. Um, right. And, you know, that's what we try to do. I would urge people, by the way, I mean, Carl's book is great. Brian Kastner, um, who is in the documentary as well, uh, uh, he speaks very bravely about his experience and his PTSD and, um, and all the veterans do. I mean, I, that, you know, that was the guy from uh, Buffalo, right? Correct. Yeah. I, re- correct. I, yep. I, he was very poignant in it as well. And, uh, again, folks, that's going to war premiering Memorial day on PBS. Uh, and again, you can stream it, uh, after that as well. Uh, but just a tremendous film. Hey folks, Tony Gatliff, host of Military Resource Radio here. And a question I get all the time about Military Resource Radio is, Tony, where can I listen to Military Resource Radio? Well, we are on several different online outlets that you can get on your favorite device. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Player FM, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn, which is already pre-programmed into your Amazon Echo device. All you need to do is go up to that Echo device and say, Alexa, play Military Resource Radio podcast. Boom. Instantly. The most recent episode of Military Resource Radio will start playing on your Amazon Echo device. Whether that's a spot, a show, the regular Echo, whatever it is, you can get Military Resource Radio anytime, any place through Amazon on that. And as well, again, folks, those online outlets where you can download, subscribe to, and rate Military Resource Radio five stars are as follows iTunes, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Player FM, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And folks, another place that you can uh, grab Military Resource Radio digitally is through our website at militaryresourceradio.com. Not only can you get uh, all available episodes of the show, a preview of our next show, and as well as some other features, this is where all the latest and greatest information about Military Resource Radio uh, is uh, given out. Uh, You can take a look at our podcast tab where you you can see each and every uh, previous episode of the show right there and available for play right at militaryresourceradio.com. You can click the About Us tab, take a look at a little bit more information about me, Tony Gatliff, your host of Military Resource Radio, and about the show itself. You can contact us uh, through our online contact form, or you can simply call us at 888-366, the number four in the letters MRR, that's Mike Romeo Romeo. Numerically, that's 888-366-4677. You can contact us either via email or via phone. Um, And uh, as well, uh, you can take a look again at militaryresourceradio.com. That's our home base for all the latest and greatest information. Uh, You can check out where to listen to us, the links for the aforementioned iTunes, SoundCloud, Spreaker, TuneIn, Player FM, Google Play, iHeartRadio. They're all right there on our website, so you can go to whichever outlet you like the best download uh, right into your device and subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars folks you have no uh, idea how much that helps here with military resource radio so again i'm tony gatliff your host of military resource radio please don't hesitate to head on over to militaryresourceradio.com and contact us through our contact form 
or uh, just take a look at some of the great information on the show. Or if you want to, give us a call. We do respond to all voicemails and messages left. Again, that number is 888-366, the number four in the letters MRR, or 888-366-4677 digitally. I'm Tony Gatliff, your host with Military Resource Radio. Now, back to more Military Resource Radio. I want to also talk as well about your other film that just uh, premiered at Tribeca to some, uh, I guess we should say, some controversy and fanfare to a certain extent. Um, and that is We got how- some nice notices for sure. Yeah, and it's a controversial film to be and, sure. Not what I intended uh, when I started, for, for sure. And, yeah. and, and again, that's House 2, and this is a feature-length, independent documentary feature about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in Marine Corps history, the Haditha Massacre, the product of over a decade of unprecedented unprecedented access to the military criminal justice system house two had its world premiere at the 2018 tribeca film festival and can you talk a little bit um just uh in in regards to that film and what you think uh folks will be interested in to uh to to be interested to learn from that film yeah sure i would be more than happy to so house two just is not a horror. It's not, you didn't miss house one, uh, or house. It's not, a <laughs> not a sequel. Yeah. Yeah. It is the, it was the NCIS designation in, in the Haditha massacre for the home where, um, uh, five children and two women were murdered in the back bedroom. And I had just come off combat diary. I, when the Haditha massacre story broke, Time magazine broke the story, and it was everywhere. I mean, it was, you mentioned Stormy Daniels. It was at a time when we were mired in a, a war that seemed unwinnable. And for many people, it's it, it they immediately made the connection to My Lai in Vietnam, and this became Bush's right. My Lai. And, right. and, and, and I reached out to Neil Puckett, uh, who at that point in May, June of 2006, uh, was defending... Staff Sergeant Frank Wooderich, who the government had leaked to the press, was at the center of the investigation. Frank ended up ultimately being charged with 18 counts of murder for crimes he claimed he didn't commit. Now, and 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 just just to make sure that uh, that everybody kind of understands, Frank Wooderich was the, I guess the. Uh, the highest ranking or supervisory. He was uh, the NCO, right? He was the squad leader that day. So they were they were, they were on a, a, a crypto change uh, from the Haditha Dam to their um, to an outpost called Sparta. An IED hit the convoy, the four Humvee convoy, killing uh, the driver in the fourth Humvee. And in the aftermath of that IED. Uh, Frank's squad killed 24 Iraqi civilians. And initially, the Marine Corps lied. Um, they lied to Stars and Stripes. They lied in a press corps, in a press statement saying that 15 civilians died as a result of an IED. Um, and Time magazine then yeah, found Tim, out the truth and broke it. Tim, Tim McGurk. Tim McGurk, yeah, the guy who... Probably, if he hadn't, you know, continued to dig and dig and dig and look into it, 
this story probably never would have been told, and God knows what would have happened. Oh, for sure. No, and the weird thing is how he found out, right? I mean, if I can go back. So what happened was I went to Neil, and I finished Combat Dire, and I thought, you know, this thing is going to be a a media circus around this trial. And I thought what I want to do is get inside and film the defense. And at the time, I thought that the trial, this was in 2006, would be a year, maybe a year and a half at the most. But we thought about a year before the court-martial would happen. And I very foolishly assumed that the truth, all the facts, would come out of trial. Frank's fate would be decided, as would all the other enlisted Marines. And then what I would have is a small, intimate, behind-the-scenes documentary that would add context afterwards, right? I, I didn't see myself breaking any news. And again, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't have a dog in the fight, uh, to be really honest. Uh, but I did think that this was important. Um, and I went to Neil and I said, this is what I want to do. And he saw Combat Diary and he thought it was good. And he said, you know, you seem like a nice guy. But the problem is, is that if the government finds out you're filming what is privileged conversations between Frank and his attorney, they're going to subpoena your footage. And you could tell me you're not going to give it to them, but you spend a night in jail or maybe a week and, and then you're going to hand it over. And, and, and I don't know what Frank's going to say. And so that risk is just far too great. And he said, no, he, he, he turned me down. And I went back and I thought about it and I approached him again and I said, well, what if you hired me? What if I was a member of the defense team? Um, and everything that I shot, you owned, right? I had a contract with you. I work for you. It's your footage. And in fact, let's go further and say, I can't make a copy of it. And let's go further and say, I can't even hold it. I have to give it to you as I shoot it. And this way, if the government serves me with a subpoena, I just turn around to them and say, it's not my footage. Go, go, go talk to the lawyer. Serve. Go talk to Staff Sergeant Wooderich's attorney and subpoena his work product and good luck with that. And to protect me and my own independence journalistically, what the contract said was that I was not paying for access. Uh, I was never paid. None of my expenses were paid by the legal team, so no money exchanged hands. But, you know, to have a contract, you've got to have some form of payment. And, and what we decided was that when Frank was no longer in legal jeopardy, decision at a court-martial or a plea deal or whatever it is, Neil would pay me by giving me title to the tapes. I would own the tapes after Frank was no longer in jeopardy. Um, and, you know, I could do anything I wanted with them. And he wasn't able to say, well, tape 25 looks really bad, so I'm not giving you that one. No, he had to give me everything contractually. And I, I presented Neil with that uh, proposition. He thought I was great. And so in the summer of 2006, I joined Frank's defense team and videotaped all of it for six and a half years. And slowly started to see that the NCIS, uh, who had done, I thought, 
an exceptionally good job in the forensic analysis of it. One agent in particular, a guy named Michael Maloney, um, had overwhelming evidence. Now, not everything, you know, the Time magazine and the mainstream media had gotten the story mostly wrong, right? Um, they sort of presented as a rampage killing, and it clearly was not that. But there were moments, and there were places, and specifically House 2, where Marines had committed murder. Um, they had killed children, lined them up, and executed them, according to the NCIS. This is not my interpretation. Um, and the forensic evidence was pretty compelling. And yet, Marines, who should have gone to trial, Let's put it that way, right? I, I, I'm not in a position to determine guilt or innocence. In our system, the way it's supposed to work is you go before a judge or a jury, evidence is collected and presented, you get to defend yourself, and then for good or ill, until somebody comes up with a better system, a jury decides your fate. Um, in this case, that system wasn't just like short-circuited. It was purposefully undermined. Evidence was withheld from the NCIS that would have um, clearly shown Marines to be responsible. Marines who should have stood trial had either their charges dismissed, sometimes with prejudice, which means that they can never be charged, or they were never charged and they were granted immunity. And it seemed that what the government was doing was all of this very intentional malfeasance. I mean, including putting people on the witness stand who they had to know were lying, who in fact admitted on the witness stand to committing perjury, right? All to scapegoat Frank Woodridge, all to say that Frank alone was responsible for Haditha. Um, and I came to see, as did others, the Marine Corps threw a staff sergeant under the bus to save itself. And the trial ended bizarrely with Frank, after having had his name just dragged through the mud for six and a half years as a mass murderer, they let him go at the end. And it made no sense. None of it made any sense. And then I spent the next four years trying to convince the NCIS to go on camera and to go on the record um, and eventually both of the special agents did. Um, and it's pretty harrowing um, and surprising. It, it was, uh, to say it was not the film I expected to make and the journey that I thought I was going to make is the understatement of my life. Um, and then, of course, as you say, controversially, uh, you know, the way that UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, works, is that there is one commanding general who has the authority to convene the court-martial. They are the convening authority. And they have the final say in the evidence in who's charged, whose charges are dismissed. Um, judge, jury, and executioner, basically. Kind of, yeah. I mean, there still is a judge and a jury, but you know, even if the, the, the convening authority has the, has the authority to vacate, a conviction or to change a um, sentencing. And in this case, the original convening authority 
um, dismissed charges against Marines who committed perjury, admitted to committing perjury, and then that testimony was used against Frank in court. Um, there were Marines who admitted to urinating on dead civilians. I um, that, that part was just so dis, just disturbing, and uh, yeah, it's it's it was yeah. pretty. And it gets worse. I mean, there are things that aren't even in that film because I don't have the time. And the very painful thing in all of this is that the convening authority, the original convening authority for Haditha, the one who set everything in motion, was Lieutenant General James Mattis, who's now the Secretary of Defense. And um, it's, it's, i got to be honest with you, I mean, I, I think the world of James Mattis, and it's a very, very painful place to be, um, because I'm, I'm not a gotcha guy, and I'm not somebody who... I mean, that was just not my intention, but, you know, I can't avoid the facts. We reached out to him. Task and Purpose, which is a phenomenal website. I don't know if you're... Yeah, abs- absolutely. It. Yeah, we've, we've talked about it many times. They're doing a big expose. They tried to reach Secretary Mattis, and they came to the same conclusion that I did. Um, look, I'll be honest with you. I don't know... I don't know the answer... Of why I know what happened in terms of the malfeasance. I don't know why it happened. Yeah. I don't know if James Mattis was lied to by his lawyers. Um. I don't know what what happened. Um. But hopefully the film and and task and purpose. Hopefully will, their piece will, is going to come out soon. Um. You know. Hopefully we'll revisit that case. Um. And and demand answers to questions. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And I mean, because there certainly are still some unanswered questions. I mean, the interesting, you know, one of the interesting parts, I guess, to this was when you say why, right? Um, sure. You know, my big thing was, you know, as as you're watching it, you're sort of, things are getting revealed sort of slowly as as you go through the film, right? And and that's just a natural way of filmmaking, you know, peaks and valleys, and you know, conflict and all that kind of stuff. the The interesting part, though, which I really never found an answer to, I guess, in the film was whoever did this, why did they do it? What was the point of massacring five children and two women for basically no reason. I, I, I just, I, I didn't understand it. Did they feel, do, do you think they felt like maybe one of these kids has a bomb or they're threatening or, or whatever, or what is your, what is your particular take on that? Cause you obviously understand it much more than I do. Right. So you're asking like the core questions that frankly the prosecution should have asked. Right. And didn't. And, um, I think what's important to note is that uh, among the defenses or the explanations was that this was just a bad war and that insurgents took refuge often with civilians as shields and that we were, you know, um, we have the best trained fighting force in the world and so we would never do that. And yet sometimes in war everything goes wrong. And people act and behave in ways that we, as a country, um, don't countenance. And that's what happened here. You know, one of the things that I think is important to note from both the NCIS and there was a sole survivor 
was that Marine very consciously sighting and targeting children. And in a room that was clean and clear for which there were no insurgents, no fragmentary grenade had gone off. Um, and in that action, you can find intent. And intent is just as important as, you know, yeah, you can't be guilty of something just for doing it. You have to intend to do it. Hey folks, Tony Gatliff here, host of Military Resource Radio. While we have a minute here, I wanted to mention our mission statement here on Military Resource Radio, and that is as follows. Here on Military Resource Radio, we connect veterans and active duty service members with amazing resources and organizations to improve their lives. We inspire veterans, active duty service members, and civilians alike to get involved with these amazing resources and organizations. We also enlighten veterans, active duty service members, and civilians alike on service-related resources and benefits like the real estate and mortgage market and process, as well as other current military news and events related to them. Uh, In addition, folks, we always like to, on Military Resource Radio, we like to send out a hearty thank you to all our veterans and active duty service members around the world and coast to coast. Thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you so much for what you continue to do. That's what makes uh, America the land of the free and the home of the brave and what uh, keeps us uh, doing Military Resource Radio every single week. So thank you so much to all our active duty service members and veterans coast to coast and around the world. We really appreciate it. Now, back to more Military Resource Radio. I think that... um I think what happened in House 2 uh, was a unit and, and specific Marines that had been pushed too far. This this unit, 3-1, had, had cycled through too quickly. They had been in Fallujah just a year before the Phantom Fury, the, that Fallujah 2. I think that they, um, you know, they did not have the perspective that David Petraeus finally brought to that war, which was the value of civilian life as a necessary component of victory um, and of peace. And um, I think that's inevitable in any war. And I think that in many ways, Haditha, the story of Haditha and then its subsequent cover-up, it should be a reminder that we should never choose war. We should always be ready for war. Um, And we should be ready if war is thrust upon us. Um, But only a fool chooses war. And unfortunately, uh, the Bush administration, and by extension, every single one of us, chose war in Iraq when we need not. And this is an inevitable consequence of it. I know that's not a very specific answer to your question. I apologize for it. I have um, some theories, and I'm at this point a little reluctant because, you know, um, I'm kind of alone out there. I mean, I, you know, Mike Maloney and I, who's the NCIS agent, have talked about it endlessly. But um, uh, the government gave all these guys a free pass, knowing that the evidence was there and suppressing much of the evidence 
suppressing evidence of nine millimeter shell casings, suppressing evidence, witness testimony. Um, it's a bewildering story. It's an infuriating story, especially if you care about the rule of law, um, you care about justice, you care about Marine Corps honor. Um, you know, it's not how we behave. And, and to me, the question of why it happened um, the way that it did is the most urgent one now. Because um, none of us are above the rule of law, and we're nothing without laws. Um, and I, you know, I, there was a moment when I sat in this courtroom at Camp Pendleton, just behind the defense team, and the prosecution was putting on the most bewildering case you can imagine. Um, Marines taking a stand, admitting to lying. Um, I, I couldn't believe that either. That was insane. Yeah. To me. It was insane. And if you really think about it, um, there were two Marines who took the stand, both of them government witnesses, who impeached the other's testimony, which is to say they called the other one out as a liar. So one Marine, Humberto Mendoza, said that he didn't go into the room where the children were, but he did open the door and saw that there were children, and then he told another Marine this. Stephen Tatum, and that Stephen Tatum then went in and shot them all. And Stephen Tatum flatly denied that, emphatically denied that, um, but admitted to shooting because Frank has already in there firing. And anyway, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on a podcast. People are going to lose themselves. But, but in effect, you could believe Mendoza, you could believe Tatum, you could believe neither, but you physically cannot believe both, right? There's just no way. There's no possible both, way that both those things are true. Correct, right? I mean, the laws of physics do not allow for that, right? Right, right. And yet, the government put both of those Marines up. They put a Marine up who their star witness in the trial was Stephen Tatum. And yet they put up another Marine, Mendoza, Humberto Mendoza, who in effect impeached their star witness. And I remember sitting in the, the courtroom thinking to myself, oh my God, what if every single person here is scared of exactly the same thing? Which is a guilty verdict. What if the very last thing anybody wants, prosecution, the judge, the Marine Corps, the press, the defense for sure, it's a guilty verdict. What if it is just all for show? They want to, to pretend. They want to charge, but not to convict. Correct. They have to charge. They have to charge. They have to put on the show for all of us, right? We don't countenance. We don't say it's okay to kill children. Mm -hmm. But we really, really don't want to convict anybody. Um, and you know, I've I've come to the conclusion uh, reluctantly but I have definitely come to the conclusion that the Marine Corps found itself forced to prosecute a case that it could not afford to win. And, um, and I think there are some very, very, very hard questions for James Mattis, unfortunately, 
to answer and for the Marine Corps to answer. And I believe me when I tell you, it gives me no joy to say that at all. I understand. Yeah. And I understand. And I mean, I think, you know, with this film, you, you, you know, you, you know, it's not a Marine Corps witch hunt, right? To use a, to use a phrase that unfortunately yeah. is used in the, in the media. Everybody in the film is a Marine. You're like right. literally I'm the only one, not a Marine. Well, Tim McGurk at the beginning, but you know, once you get going, right. Everybody, it's only Marine. Everyone's a Marine. And I got to say, uh, NCIS isn't, uh, exactly LL Cool J and Chris O'Donnell. It's a little different than yeah. that in, in real life, but uh, which I've never seen yeah. really anything about NCIS, you know, in terms of I, I, first of all, I've never seen those shows. I'm aware of them, but uh, the I've never seen anything really like a, in terms of the technical aspect of NCIS, and that was interesting to see. My my Yeah, the forensic science is great in the film. I have to say, you know, if you, I mean, the film is a classic whodunit, and the NCIS and the forensics, those guys, Mike Maloney and Tom Brady, are heroes. Uh, I really, I, I have, I mean, I think Mike Maloney is, he's one of my heroes. And um, hopefully people will get to see the film. I mean, we're still struggling to find a distribution for it, but uh, hopefully it'll get out there at some point. Well, I, I think you will. And, folks, that's going to do it with Military Resource Radio for today. I know it was a very long episode, but I think it was very informative. And, again, we'll have Michael Epstein on next uh, week as well. Uh, and uh, we had him on the week before. So, again, subscribe to the podcast so the uh, episodes get automatically downloaded in your favorite device via iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, those will uh, automatically come into your uh, your device, and as well, if you go to uh, uh, as well our previous shows uh, that's available on militaryresourceradio.com under the podcast tab or on any of our podcast outlets, you can listen to the first episode with Michael as well. And we'll be back next week with more Michael Epstein here on Military Resource Radio. Again, just another reminder, head on over to militaryresourceradio.com for all the latest and greatest information on the show. And as well, uh, please go ahead and follow us on Twitter at MilitaryRR. That's the word military, Romeo, Romeo. Again, my name is Tony Yetliff. I'm your host of Military Resource Radio, and I'm looking forward to to uh, everyone joining us again next week for the uh, awesome conclusion of this interview with Michael Epstein uh, of the uh, of the movies Going to War and House 2. Again, Going to War premiering on Memorial Day on PBS and as well House 2 just premiered at Tribeca. So uh, absolutely an amazing uh, person. Uh, can't wait to have him on again next week. And folks, we will talk to you then. Tony Gatliff signing off for Military Resource Radio. 